Here we are with episode 75 of the Florida Trail Runners podcast. And this time we are talking to Aaron Hale, who ran the Daytona 100. He had one heck of a crew and ran nearly every single mile with Ty Aronson. Now, Ty, he was guiding Aaron. And for those who don't know, Aaron, Aaron cannot see. You know, he's 100% blind and he is also deaf. He's a 14-year veteran, military chef, and explosive ordnance disposal team leader, so EOD. And from the moment the blast robbed Aaron of his vision while in Afghanistan, and then later his hearing, he refused to accept defeat. So now you're seeing Aaron doing, you know, he's climbing mountains, he's doing this, he's doing that, he's knocking out these 100 milers, and he's also in the kitchen. So hey, go check out EOD Fudge. I'm talking, this is fudge made by Aaron. And the fudge he makes, there's no preservatives, they're hand-wrapped, they're hand-packaged. I'm talking straight from Aaron's kitchen right to your doorstep. So check that out. And hey, let's kick this thing off with Aaron Hale and the Daytona 100. Hey, Aaron. Hey, there we go. Man, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. You know, it was the strangest thing. I thought it was some weird uh, duplicate text, but two different numbers sent almost the same. Were we still good for this afternoon? Are we still on? Uh, almost at the same time. And I thought, okay, that was weird. Maybe it was some kind of, you know, automated like podium or automatic texting from the same person or server. So I just kind of skipped over it and it was you. All sorts of new and creative ways the buying guy can screw something up. Yeah. Are you on a lot of podcasts or that kind of I, thing? I actually do. Uh, but on very quite a few podcasts in the last few years and including on this platform anchor it's just that each one of them has its own little nuances and um i gotta remember how to navigate some of these things yeah i was kind of curious mm. what's what's it like on your on your end do you speak to talk or does your wife wife help you or how does that work you know i'll, I'll tell you i'm 100 blind and except for one cochlear implant i'm 100 deaf so um you know, 40, 50 years ago, I would have been pulling the full Helen Keller. But, uh, you know, because of this one little piece of technology, actually not just one, but you've got, like, my ears are turned off. So this thing, it takes, it's not a hearing aid. It doesn't send, uh, it doesn't take audio and then amplify it down the ear canal. It actually takes it, turns it into a digital signal, sends it to an electrode that is then inserted right into the cochlea bone um, and is attached right to the uh, auditory nerve. And then your brain literally has to learn what it's hearing, you know, what this new signal is. Um, and then, of course, uh, it's kind of like hitting a bullet with a bullet as your brain is learning how, how this new input. I go in for, a, you know, periodic tune-ups. Like the, you take those hearing tests and audiograms and the the uh, tech does some tweaks with the highs and lows. If you imagine like one of those you know, studio sound boards and just adjust it. And then I'm Bluetooth connected 
with this thing to my computer and my 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 phone and other devices so that um I can actually connect with the outside world and voiceover. It's like the Siri voice on Apple products. He's reading out, you know, the text, the objects, things like hyperlinks and buttons and uh, uh, form fields, text fields, stuff like that. And then, of course, there's the, the Internet and different types of apps. And now I'm... I'm able to connect to you across the ether and talk to people across the world. And that's 101 ways this blind guy can screw something up. But Cal, I didn't know. I didn't know we were that advanced in technology. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I mean, it's it's nothing like the real thing, but it's way better than the alternative. That is true. So I take it like things like tinnitus and stuff like that. You don't you don't get that at all. Anymore. Nope, nope. Um, <laughs> when uh, when I was in the uh, doctor's office, uh, you know, after the like the I kind of come out of my bout of meningitis and I was still in the hospital recovering, and you know the the the, the hearing was being stolen from me whether the heavy doses of antibiotics or the um the bacteria itself and it felt like i was it felt like i was congested or underwater and i almost was completely you know like the, the tuned out radio silent and the doctor said you're you're about to be completely deaf and i'm like so what you're telling me doc is I'm going to be 100% blind and 100% deaf. I'm never going to have to ever pay it, you know, pretend to pay attention ever again. Yeah, there's a silver lining to everything. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, that's, that's, I mean, there are upsides to everything. For example, all I have to do is, like, you know, the cochlear implant, you know, the processor is sitting on my earlobe like a hearing aid, but there's, then there's this magnetic coil or tether that sends the signal right to, um, it just connect, like connects, you know, over the skin to, you know, the, the opposite, the actual implant uh, opposite the, the magnet under the skin. And all I got to do to shut, you know, like say my kids or my wife out is take the the um, processor off, take that magnet off. Uh, my wife does not like when I do that. <laughs> Growing I'm up, not listening. School, la 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 la. <laughs> Growing up in high school, I went to Catholic school, and uh, we had a kid who had hearing aids, and we had this priest who would talk like this, just super loud, and you would look over and you see him. All of a sudden, he's turning off his hearing aids. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know the old fat. You know the old. Um, you ever hear when somebody's hearing aid batteries are dying and it makes that awful sound? Have you ever heard that? It's just like a real high pitched tone. They don't do that to us anymore. Uh, at least not for the imp- implants. It's more of just like a like some kind of you know warning beep you might hear on your phone. Um, but the previous uh, model of this thing, it was like the two-minute warning. Like, oh, crap, I better find a battery fast. And now it's like 10 minutes or something. And so it's just long enough for me to forget. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll get the beep, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I better hurry up and find a battery. And then I get, I'll just finish what I'm doing here real quick. And all of a sudden, oh, I'm, I'm deaf again. Well, it's like that high-pitched sound. I can't even hear a high pitch. We have these... Um little beepers to keep uh like rats and snakes away from the house because we have chickens and such i can't even hear them but my girlfriend can hear them she's like you do you hear that sound i'm like i don't even know what you're talking about (laughs) (laughs) 
But yeah, that's really interesting because I really only hear about the deaf side of things from like movies and stuff. So it's nice to actually learn what it actually is. Yeah, well, it was it was really fascinating to to learn. Of course, uh, I was a captive audience. <laughs> and it took a very, very long time, excruciatingly long. I'm not a patient guy, but going blind and also going deaf, I've had ample opportunity to exercise that skill. Um, so, you know, I've been, I've been blind since I was 2000, uh, since I was uh, injured in Afghanistan in 2011. I was doing my job as an EOD technician, explosive ordnance disposal, and I was you know, I'm the, I'm the guy that gets in the bomb suit and makes that long walk towards the you know, the IEDs and car bombs and all that kind of stuff. And one of them, one of them got me. And uh, you can you consider it kind of a mixed bag, maybe a blessing in disguise. But uh, the blast only hit me in the head. Uh, from my neck down, I was virtually untouched, like not even scratches. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Uh, must have been from the uh, the hard packed earth or something. I do not know how it only did that. But uh, we hail boys have very thick skulls, so uh, <laughs> it was a perfect place. Um, but then I went deaf. Yeah, you know, I, I, had, I had some hearing loss, of course, but uh, I still had my own natural hearing until the meningitis in 2015. So it was almost four years. Uh, of being blind, getting used to you know this new life of mine, and I I started you know running marathons and climbing mountains and uh, whitewater kayaking, and I was speaking, I was talking to people all over the country and telling them about this whole you know uh, triumph over tragedy and um, you know success through struggle and because of it, and um, all of a sudden it was like you know the powers that be said um uh put your put your money where your mouth is and yeah. so uh i had to I had, basically it was like starting from scratch all over you know i'd learned all these new skills and new adaptations for being a you know a human being a productive member of society and uh, i had to start all over like all the tools and techniques i'd I'd learned uh, on how to be a blind person. They were all like audio based. Um, you know, Braille, kind of a uh, kind of an old archaic uh, technology, especially when you've got you know scanners and this text to speech technology and all that kind of stuff. Of course, when you go deaf, the first thing I thought was maybe I should have. Should have studied a little Braille. <laughs> did you learn Braille? Did you actually use Braille? I did. I actually started studying Braille as soon as I got back from the hospital. One of our friends that's local um, uh, knows Braille, knows how to teach it. And she started teaching. You know, of course, I'm like, you know, stubborn and, and didn't want to. And it, it was, I was actually kind of pissed off for a while. It was not in a good place. And I started learning and I, just as I started catching on, um, the the implant started giving me some audio input. I'm like, all right, I quit. <laughs> <laughs> I got better I, stuff to do. It's like learning a whole new language anyway. At the same time, you know, uh, 
uh, uh, we were also going. It was, it was a huge life transition, right? Being going, becoming deaf, learning how to. You know, it was like six months before uh, I can get like actually hear anything from the cochlear implant. It was even longer before I could understand uh, another human voice. So that's a long time to be trapped inside your body. And it's, I mean, it was, it was like, I couldn't get, uh, you know, I couldn't get a message in. Uh, My girlfriend at the time, my wife now, Michaela, started writing every single letter of every single word anybody needed to tell me in the palm of my hand in, of course, like capital block letters, because I'm, you know, army. Um... But uh, <laughs> that's that was tedious and frustrating. But that's how I could get messages in. At the same time, I also you know lost my inner ear, my vestibular sense of balance, so I couldn't even get on my treadmill and start and go for a run to blow off some steam. I came home in a wheelchair. So, <clears throat> so, so the only outlet for me at the time was cooking, and the holidays were coming up. So decided to throw a huge Thanksgiving feast and we invited tons of people. And um, it was the, you know, in six months, uh, Michaela said she, she, saw, she saw two things. You know, the first thing was a smile on my face for the first time in, you know, half a year. And I was having fun cooking. I was making all these cakes and pies and, you know, cookies and stuff. I was making batch after batch of fudge, just having fun experimenting with flavors. I'd make one batch, set it to the side, and, you know, make another. Um, I was tossing nuts and spices, going to the liquor cabinet, a little bit into the fudge, a little bit into my mouth. Um, (laughs) And she said the other thing she noticed was the fudge was piling up so uh she gave she started giving it away to you know neighbors and friends and people started asking if they could buy some for a like a shower or a you know birthday party or something and the capitalist in me said well of course you may and all of a sudden we just had a had a business uh, we started eodfudge.com and of course, at the same time, I started getting on my treadmill and holding on to the uh, like, you know, the stability bar with an iron grip, and just hit the quick start button and just start walking at that point five miles an hour. And then once I got comfortable with that, I just hit the you know speed up button once and beep, beep, beep until I was I was walking at like a power walk pace. And eventually, I, I was brave enough to do a light jog and the whole time, holding on for dear life. And that's how I got back into running. One year after the uh, meningitis, I registered for uh, the Akron Marathon, Akron, Ohio. That's my hometown. And uh, it's still my PR, my first sub four marathon. And it also happened to be my 20th high school reunion. So went back to my hometown, had this awesome comeback run, and then, you know, got to go back and see all my high school friends and rub it in their face. <laughs> <laughs> Which, yeah, I mean, what's that, what was that history growing up? Uh, my history growing up, you know, Ohio boy, Buckeye. You know, Midwestern Norman Rockwell, you know, high school, you know, Friday night football. And it was pretty, pretty vanilla 
uh, upbringing. I, I loved where I grew up. I had tons of friends and I just had a blast. And I also had just enough talent and ability to not have to try really hard to just get by, right? Not to excel, but, you know, BC student, you know, get onto the football team and lacrosse team and stuff like that, but not be the star, that kind of thing. So uh, when I got to college, you know, everybody who had learned how to work hard uh, <laughs> quickly passed me by. And um, I quickly you know, found myself uh, uh, um, leaving school, being invited not to come back and uh, needing uh, you know, a course correction and to find some work ethic, some you know, values, to, you know, a purpose. I didn't have, a, like, I didn't have a whole lot of ambition. So that's when I decided uh, I would go back to college, do it again the right way. After I'd gotten these, you know, core values. And so I'd, I would, I would jo join the military. They'd give me the the skills I needed. And then they would give me that GI Bill tuition that I just passed away. And, and so I didn't really know much about the military. I absolutely knew my entire life up until about a month before enlisting that I'd never be in the service. So I, uh, I just kind of, it was almost like flipping a coin, but I, I thought the Navy just looked cool. I'd go see the world and adventure. I'd love to travel. Uh, I'd, I'd have them, you know, make me a, a cook. I'd be a cook on the ship, learn, do some OJT, and then I'd, I'd be a chef. Uh, I'd go to culinary school with the GI Bill. That was, that was at least a plan. And that's where I started. So I enlisted, uh, went to Navy cooking or basic training, Navy cooking school. And then um, they sent me to Italy. And I said, where am I going to be cooking? This is awesome. You know, I'm in Italy. And they said, oh, no, you're on shore duty. And this is what they don't tell you know, cooks in the Navy when they're going through the school or even in the recruiter's office. But they kind of looked at it, at least at that time. It's changed since then. But they kind of looked at it like the civilian equivalent of hotel restaurant management. So when you're at sea, you're cooking. When you're on shore, you're running the Navy's version of the hotels, which are the barracks. So I get off the plane and I'm like, where am I going to be cooking? And they're like, no, no, no. You're, you're the FNG. So you're going to be night desk, night watch at the barracks. So you're going to be checking people in, hand them out, handing out like bed rolls and <laughs> that kind of stuff, <laughs> running, taking trouble call tickets. And that's, that's my introduction to the Navy. But, uh, in a few years, I'd actually worked my way. <laughs> it's kind of funny. I, I worked my way up to the maintenance department where I was now taking the trouble call tickets from the front desk and escorting the local national Italian public works guys uh, around, escorting them around the, you know, the barracks. And I would, I would point at things and say, come on, CDJ, come on, CDJ. How do you say that? How do you say that? And I was learning Italian from like Napolitan roughnecks, plumbers and electricians. <laughs> it was, so it's like the ebonics of Italian, but uh uh, that I started learning Italian and I started immersing myself in the culture. And two years after getting to Italy, I was actually cooking on board, uh, cooking for the three-star admiral, commander of the U.S. Sixth Fleet aboard the USS LaSalle, the flagship of the Mediterranean. And I was cooking like real food. It was awesome. 
I was cruising around the Mediterranean and pulling into all these cool ports. It was a a, a hardship duty. It was not. But uh, it was an amazing experience. Yeah, I was curious what got you into cooking. Was it like the family or you just like really love food? Because I know yeah. like, I, I enjoy cooking a lot of like Mediterranean Greek style stuff. And when it comes to sweets, I don't know what happens. They always turn out not the way I intended. <laughs> you know, uh, I was always I've always been more of a savory guy, actually. Never a huge sweets guy. But for me, it's like my, my the whole mom's, my mom's whole side of the family are very artistic, like very creative people. Um, my, my great aunt is this amazing watercolor artist. And my mom is great with so many different mediums. It's, it's incredible. My brother was an awesome sketch artist. Um, for me, my creativity, I was, I was actually pretty decent, um, in some of those sketch art, uh, arts and paints and stuff, but my real creativity came out in the kitchen. I love the culinary arts because you don't just get to, I mean, it's good to look at, but it's also it tastes really good. <laughs> and then you just get to get to make it over and over again. But um, yeah, it's just, uh, it was a way to be creative. And it was, it was a way to share joy with other people. And I really love, you know, the satisfaction of somebody enjoying my creations seeing, you know, visually and, uh, you know, of course, taste and, and texture and all these different ways you get to experience food. And I absolutely loved it. Still do. <laughs> so how did you transition from the Navy? You know, you're, you're chefing it up, you're cooking. What made you go to the army and go, you know what? I'm going to go EOD. It's a bit of a course correction. Yes. <laughs> Um, I went from Navy cook, Admiral's cook, to Army bomb squad. And I went from sailing around the Italy and the Mediterranean to the deserts of Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, I tell people it was because I, I, I got my first confirmed kill with a cheesecake and decided I wanted to start saving lives instead. Uh, <laughs> the truth is... You know, I was this when I was in Italy. I was there between 1999 and 2004. And what else happened during that time? Two wars kicked off. So I joined in a time of peace. I told my mom, "Don't worry, I'm going to be in the navy." Yeah. Well, or whenever anything bad happens, I'm going to be way out of the sea and you know, and safe, right? I'm not going to be, they're not going to give me a gun and send me into the, you know, jungles or the desert or anything. And then, uh, I don't know, I never even had that much of a um, interest in firearms, you know, but uh, that, you know, I, like I told you, I, I joined for these selfish reasons, core values, you know, the, you know, work ethic, uh, a purpose uh, uh, the GI Bill, you know, to better myself and better my life. And I got that as I joined uh, the Navy and became a sailor. And I really, um, it, it went beyond me. And I learned mo so much more about being a part of this big, greater, greater, you know, goal of selfless service uh, to, you know, service to the country, service to our people, 
and and to or my fellow brothers and sisters in arms right and then i just i i was going to do four years and get out and then eight years later <laughs> um uh well it was, it was just a few years later um both wars are going off and I was I was out in the Mediterranean, uh, and uh, yeah, everybody you know everybody in the service has got a, uh, every everybody's job is important, right? But I was watching the wars happen on the news on board the ship. I knew it was happening, but I was still so far apart from it, and I wanted. I knew that my 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 skills, my uh, my abilities, my talents could be better served than making very, very, very delicious food. Um, so um, I actually uh, volunteered to get, you know, go on what's called a uh, PRT, Provincial Reconstruction Team, and they're like civil affairs teams over in Afghanistan. And, but what I'd be doing, of course, being a Navy cook, I'd be running the base chow hall, the dining facility. But I was closer to the action. But that's, long story short, is that's when I met some EOD technicians. These guys uh, had this big armored truck and they one day they were out in the parking lot uh, near uh, the chow hall and they had all of their gear dumped out of the truck uh, just outside the, the and, and they were doing maintenance checks, you know, cleaning stuff, checking batteries and making sure everything worked. And they had bomb suits and robots and all this other, you know, stuff kind of strewn about. And it was like a cool guy garage sale. I was saying all the cool guy stuff. <laughs> so I, I struck up a conversation with these guys. I learned all about the technical aspect of the job, the tight-knit brotherhood, the fact that they're first responders, lifesavers on the battlefield and everything. Everything just pinged. It was, that was it. That just clicked. That's what I needed to do. Also... They invited me to go do a controlled detonation. I guess they had some some stuff that they needed to get rid of, rockets and landmines and stuff. So I went out with them one day to their um, uh, their uh, their range, their blast range, which is basically anywhere outside the wire, the outside the the wire. And they made a pile of stuff. They put their sea floor on it. They did set up their you know their initiator uh, and then came back towards the safe area behind the truck and said hey you want to set this thing off i'm like do i uh, <laughs> and uh, it was so funny you know the, they said okay and before you press this button i want you to say fire in the hole as loud as you can i'm like wait 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 wait. do, do you guys really do that <laughs> <laughs> yes Say it th as loud as you can three time in three different directions, and uh, I did it. I, I yelled a fire in the hole in three times in three different directions, and I popped that thing, and boom! And I was hooked. You know everything about it, and you get to blow things up. So that's how I you know first learned about EOD. The problem was um, the Navy didn't didn't want me to become an EOD tech. So I, I put in my request and they said, we're not taking cooks into the EOD program. So I guess they just liked my cooking too much. Um, <laughs> but 
by the time my deployment to Afghanistan was up, so was my contract with the Navy. And I'd have to decide whether I wanted to re-enlist or get out. Uh, I decided uh, I would get out. And I took my uh, service record. I went over to the Army recruiter. I handed it, you know, flopped it out on the desk and said, I want to go EOD. And, of course, with two wars kicking, you know, in full swing, they're like, welcome. Uh, and I guess they, you know, they, they take anybody. Uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I uh, became, became and changed the uniforms. I got to keep my rank. They trained me as a soldier, and then they trained me as an EOD technician. And, wow, real fast, I found myself in Iraq. And then not long after, I found myself in Afghanistan again, this time as an EOD team leader in 2011. And December 8th, 2011 was when I got injured, about eight months into the deployment. Yeah, because I know that the EOD school is not an easy school to get through. No, no, it's not. Um, especially after I got uh, injured, I went back there and I became a hard-nosed instructor. Uh, but um, uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's not f- as physically demanding as say your like special operations, uh, you know, buds and rangers and that. Uh, it is physically demanding. I mean, you have to prove that you're strong enough to not just wear an 80, 90 pounds of bomb suit, but you have to maintain your faculties while, you know, basically getting smoked in this, um, this bomb suit, you know, say on the desert or, you know, the practice pits of the Florida panhandle. Um, and you also have to, you know, maintain your ability to, you know, use critical thinking, and that's that's actually really really tough. Um, but the the most difficult part of the school is that it's really fast paced. It's very uh, heavy, like knowledge based information. Um, the attrition rate is is very high just because uh, the standards are so difficult. So. Um, uh, of I think it's about forty three weeks of training. Uh, you're, there's a test, uh, an average of every two or three days, and you only get you get only get two chances. If you fail, in, uh, a failing grade is below eighty five. Nobody wants somebody who got C's to go, you know, put on the bomb suit. Yeah, so, and some some of the uh, um, penalties on, in the tests are sixteen point hits. So you get one thing wrong. It's it, some mistakes are not reversible. So the motto uh, at the school is initial success or total failure. It kind of puts a you know, pretty fine point on it. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. I only tripped that wire once. You know, it's uh, there. Uh, there, was, there are some some mistakes that aren't you know second chances for in this this you know type of job. So uh, they make it they make it very difficult for good reason. Yeah, and exactly. And as you were mentioning, you know, you're eight months into the deployment, and I guess you know I'll ask the questions that maybe some people on the street might be a little scared to ask, but. I guess what happened, you know, what was the day like coming in before it went 
the secondary went off and how, what happened? Well, the incident that got me um, <clears throat> was actually during the holidays also. Uh, I'd just gotten back from my two weeks of R&R. See, I was on a one-year, 12-month uh, rotation to Afghanistan. And everyone deployed who is out there for 12 months or more is required to take a two-week vacation. So I went back home. I got to see my my firstborn turn one. I got to you know visit with the family and you know sit around the uh, Thanksgiving table and see all my uh, family. And I tell everybody it's, it's the best last page in the photo album I could have ever imagined. I got to see my whole family together, smiling and enjoying a Thanksgiving. It's probably the reason. I love Thanksgiving the most. You know, you know, it's a you get to gather all your loved ones around and talk about how grateful you are for everything, and you also get have an excuse to eat like an absolute glutton. So awesome holiday, um, but uh, I had to go back uh, to the the battlefield and finish out my my tour. And my team picked me up in our armored truck. We jumped into a convoy heading back out to our area of operation. And um, on the way there, the convoy commander called back and said there was, a, was an ID, something in the side of the road. And they wanted us to take a look. We weren't even on duty. We were just like, you know, uh, passengers in this train heading out to our uh, area. But we were close. We were the closest team. So I tossed the luggage off of the uh, robot, tossed the robot out the truck, and we got to work. Um, it, it saw, it, what we found was the same thing we've been working on for eight months. It's like a it's most simple, it's like an oil jug with a plywood pressure plate connected by lamp cord and a 9-volt battery. That's it. And the oil jug has homemade explosives in it. And uh, the, the robot actually tore it apart, but it couldn't get the, the jug out of the hard-packed earth. So uh, I still wanted to get some evidence because part of our job is like CSI. You know, we want to get samples. There's tape, there's fingerprints, there's... Uh, you know, it's true that bomb makers have their own like signature that kind of stuff. And we wanted to get on, if you imagine the timeline, we really wanted to get left of the boom and really get to the bomb emplacer, the bomb maker, the bomb uh, financer, all that kind of stuff. So uh, I jumped out with an evidence kit, metal detector, and I started working my way towards uh, the IED. It was now, for all intents and purposes, rendered safe because the the robot had ripped away the pressure plate. Um, but about 20 or 30 meters from the original ID, there was another one. It hadn't yet been detected. So that's the one that got me. Uh, the, it, you know, the, instantly, like it punted me, the lights went out, and I just got, I got I, like tossed onto my knees and elbows. Uh, I was still conscious. I don't know how lucid I was, but I was still awake. And, you know, training just kicked in. I knew that there was a potential for an ambush right after a blast. 
So the first thing was I needed to figure out if I could get back in the fight. Since the lights were out, I thought my, my helmet had actually gotten pushed over my, my face. Um, before I could check that, I did this, you know, the function check, the systems check, and wiggled all the fingers and toes, and seemed like everything was still there. Uh, so I reached up to grab my, you know, fix my helmet and get back at it, just to find that the helmet was gone. <laughs> and I'm like, oh no, this is bad. My first sergeant's going to kill me for losing that thing. <laughs> Um, but, um, I realized that I was damaged. I was, I was injured. Right. Um, and you know, I knew the next thing that, uh, happens when a team leader goes down on the job is that the team members back in the truck, they clear a safe path for the medics to get me out. And I did not want anybody to come into a potentially hazardous area with more IEDs lying around. Um, like I said, I don't know how, you know, I was, you know, how well I was thinking, rationally I was thinking. So I started making my way back towards the truck doing this like weird, you know, zombie walk thing. Um, I had no idea where the truck was anymore. So I'm just walking around the battlefield like an idiot. Uh, but um, uh, my my team grabbed me, dragged me back to the truck, medics got to me, and within, I think it was like 14 minutes, I was back in the air and heading right back to the airfield we just left. And within 48 hours, I was at Walter Reed uh, uh, Hospital in, um, in Bethesda, Maryland, on my way to becoming, you know, uh, blind for the rest of my life. Yeah, I think because I was reading the, um, the Houses for Heroes article and like they had mentioned, like you broke every single bone in your face. Um, I wasn't counting, but <laughs> I felt like it. <laughs> I don't want to be too graphic, but I know that's like we talk about running and blisters and stuff. Uh, I, I for days after the blast, and I'm sitting there, and I've got bandages over my eyes and stuff, and I'm like something feels weird up in my gums. I'm like tonguing, like just you know, scratches and scabs and stuff. And I'm like, wait, 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 that's not a scab. And I pull out a piece of gravel uh, from under my lips. And it was just like, oh, look at that. You know, like, oh, cool. Check this out. So I've got, I've got this like little, um, like one of those uh, medical sample jars full of bits and pieces that came out of my face. I don't know where that went, but who cares? Uh, it's weird souvenirs. But uh, yeah, I was, I was there. Um, it's uh, just minutes, you know, from DC. So of course, every single day, there's some kind of dignitary coming through, and um, <laughs> and I'm just, uh, you know, trying to get better, trying to figure out um, how I'm gonna survive, uh, how I'm gonna be. You know, it's like, you know, like I never think about this kind of thing until it happens. I never even, you know, contemplated what it would be like to be blind. And all of a sudden, um, thrust into this world of darkness, and I, I decided, you know, it was, it, it would, there was a time. I mean, it was, it was a short period where it was just like, why me? What if I'd just done something different? I was so mad. I was mad at the Taliban. I was mad at the president. I was mad at the army. I was, I was, I was mad at everybody, but mostly I was mad at myself. And all those, those uh, self-defeating thoughts, those demons trying to get on. Well, I have such an amazing family, uh, such a support team. 
And, um, you know, there are these warriors up and down these halls that are going through their own battles. And it didn't take me long to, to snap out of that, you know, self-pity and realize that I'm still alive. You know, I might have lost my eyes, but, you know, I, I still have my my wits. I still have my arms and legs. I still have most of me is, you know, intact. I have my family. Uh, I have a, a life ahead of me. And if I'm going to be a, a blind guy for the rest of my life, I'm going to be the best damn blind guy I can be. So I got to work learning how to do it. it I think sometimes it's the, it's the real question of if people are just scared of the dark or they're just scared to actually, you know, see. Well, it's fear of the unknown. I mean, it's not like you automatically become terrified as soon as you close your eyes. Because just before you closed your eyes, you got to see what was around you. It's fear of the unknown. What's lurking beyond what you've already seen. So... For me, uh, I'm still afraid of heights. You just got to tell me when I got to be terrified. That was a joke. Just don't tell you. <laughs> yeah, don't look down. But yeah, that's that's. I think that's part of you know part part of what military helped me with was that you know trust in my team, trust in you know those uh, my brothers and sisters to my left and right because uh, you know everything had just become a team sport. I mean, everything from grocery shopping to going for a run or mountain climbing or everything uh, that was one something that I could do independently. I had to count on others to, to help me at least learn how to do. And I had to, I had to learn, um, you know, I had to, I'd become strong and, and humble enough to ask for help. But uh that's what i did i'm like i'm I'm going to i'm going to figure this out and i started as soon as as, you know we're talking about the technology you know the screen readers and stuff like that the the iphones and the talking computers and um as soon as i started learning how to do that i was researching you know i was doing like internet searches for blind plus outside outdoors blind plus whatever I could think of, uh, get it, get it, you know, not being trapped on my couch and, uh, a slave to my disability. And a few names kept popping up. <laughs> um, uh, Eric Weinmayer, for example, was the first blind person to climb Mount Everest. And, uh, you know, I sought him out. I actually went mountain climbing with him. Um, yeah, we we did. Uh, it, it, he's not a veteran himself, but his father uh, served, and for his, the tenth anniversary of his Everest climb, he actually took an entire team of wounded veterans up Labouche, which is the sister summit to uh, Everest, and then it became a program. And in 2013, I joined this veteran team and Eric up a 19,000 foot peak in the Peruvian Andes. Oh, dang. And then there was a guy named Lonnie Bedwell, who's also a Navy veteran. Um, he didn't go blind in service. He says he was on a hunt and his uh, friend um, uh, Dick Cheney'd him. Uh, <laughs> but uh, he is the first blind person to kayak the entire Grand Canyon. 
you know, Colorado River through the entire Grand Canyon. So, you know what? I saw him out and I went kayaking with him. We did class three rapids on the Yellowstone River in solo boats. But I'm not blazing a new trail here. I'm just trying to figure out. And I'm learning from these guys who are already figuring it out. You know, I talked to uh, this, uh, this guy who's also, he was a, also Army. He stayed active duty after going blind uh, as a ranger and became uh, a recruiter. And it might have been a mistake to talk to this, this guy, but he said he always made it a point every year to join, you know, to register and run uh, the... Um, Air Force Marathon, the Army 10-Miler, and the Marine Corps Marathon. And that's when I thought, oh, that sounds like a good idea. I'll do that. So I I immediately registered for all of those. And then somebody said, you know what? You should probably do something local. So why don't you register? You want to run the Pensacola Marathon? All right, let's do that. And then I've out of the blue some... A uh, nonprofit organization I've never heard of before uh, said they'd they'd um, they would uh, you know just pay my way registration and travel if I wanted to go run the San Antonio Rock and Roll Marathon. Like sure, why not? So before I knew it, I was running four marathons and the Army Ten Miler all within a four month span, and I'd never run anything longer than a ten k in my life. So I, I started started training, and um, I started getting myself ready. Uh, that's that's kind of that's, that's how I've been doing all these things. I just pick a wild, uh, hairy, audacious goal, and then figure out how to do it. Yeah, because I know now you're running with a with a guide. How does how does how does that actually work? It's not real high tech. <laughs> um, when a blind person just walks with a sighted guide, all they got to do is hold on to their elbow like they're holding on to a glass of water, right? And for the most part, you just follow the elbow wherever it goes. If there's like a step up or a step down or a door or something in the way, it's it would be nice of the guide to tell the blind person what's coming up. Otherwise, the blind person just follows the elbow. That's sided uh, guiding. Uh, when it comes to running, virtually the same thing, except we use a short tether. I've got this little strip of uh, nylon webbing, like a backpack strap. And um, I had somebody sew a loop in either end that could fit about three fingers. And my guide and I both get a loop. I'll slide my fingers in there and boom. We're off. If uh, we have to get uh, go single file, um, my guide swings that that tether behind them like you know they're handing a baton off to somebody behind them, and we just keep running. Um, if I got a high step it for like a curb or you know imperfections in the road, the, my guide will just kind of pull up on the tether a little bit, and it's like a marionette string pulling my knees up and of course you know we talk we just talk about what's ahead and it's nice to get a picture of what's happening while we're running too but for the most part we're just chatting away like it's two people out for a run because that's what it is so you knocked out some marathons how did you end up going you know what i'm gonna go with the hundred miler 
<laughs> How did I? Uh, you know, it was, you know, it's my coach's fault. I'm going to blame Lisa. Uh, Lisa Smith Batchin. She's just a legend in the running space. Uh, she's run. Um, bad water. I don't know how many times she's done some pretty incredible things. Uh, Marathon to sob. I mean, this is a list of accolades are incredible, and her list of um, students even more so. So I forget exactly which race it was. I think it was the Marine Corps Marathon I was training for, and um, I had Lisa as a coach. I asked her if she knew anybody that might want to guide me for the Marine Corps Marathon. And she says she knows this guy, Frank. And she would connect us. So uh, it was kind of funny because uh, Frank didn't know who he was at first. He just sent me an email and says, hey, we uh, can't wait to guide you for this thing. It's going to be exciting. Uh, what kind of pace are you looking for? I'm like, I don't know, somewhere around four hours. He goes, uh, uh, he responds to me and goes, uh, I haven't run for speed in a while. I'll have to start training. Like, oh, uh, who? And I'm thinking, who is this guy, right? But I look him up, and it's Frank Fumick, who's you know he, you know, like the 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 five Kers and the half marathoners, and they look at the marathoners and say those guys are crazy, and the marathoners they look at the like the hundred milers and they're like, wow, that's crazy. Yeah, the people who run hundred milers they look at Frank and go, that dude is crazy. He's done. Every nonsense, ridiculous thing that most people have never even fathomed as possible. You know, um, a, like a DECA triathlon. And I'm trying to think, like, bad, he's done bad water. He's done uh, ultras on every continent. He, you know, skis or snowshoes uh, to the poles. He's going, he's going to South Pole again here in a month. Um he ran uh, coast to cozy because you know he's you know climbing the seven summits is one thing, but you know uh, was it Kosciusko, the tallest summit on Australia, is only like eight thousand feet. So why not run like one hundred and fifty miles first and then climb the tallest peak in Australia? That's that's like I'm like oh man, that's pretty cool. So we're running the Marine Corps Marathon. I'm like, tell me more about this insane stuff you do, because um, I'm. I was. I was. I was. By uh, by the time we met, you know, I was definitely into like running and all these adventures and challenging myself. And that's really what it was. It was that um, I told you the, the the first thing was getting out of the house because I was terrified of that couch. I didn't, I didn't want to sit in my own couch because I thought I would be afraid I would, I'm stuck there like popping pills or climbing into a bottle or something. I didn't want to do it. So I'd go out and run and then I'd run a little bit further and I'd, I'd test myself. And I was finding that um, my injuries, uh, my illness, it was like a, it was like a catalyst for achievement. Uh, I went through a hard thing, and I learned that I could, I could, I could do that. So I found more hard things, and then I ran marathons, and that was hard, but I knew I could do it. So what else could I do? And I, I learned about these ultras, and I signed up for uh, a twelve-hour, 
in Albany, Georgia, in like the middle of July. You call it Southern Discomfort. Oh, yeah, so, that's a good one. Yeah. So I, I did that. Uh, ran a one-mile loop for 12 hours. Um, that, that was uncomfortable. So, yeah, fitting name. And, um, and Frank was with me for that one. And then, uh, and he was only two weeks off uh, after riding across America. Then Ram, so yeah, uh, I, he asked me on that one, like, how far do you want to go in twelve hours? I'm like, I don't know. I'd like to break fifty miles. He's like, are you trying to kill me? <laughs> so, uh, but uh, that's that's it was my coach who introduced us, and I just kind of I got into uh, pushing myself further and further, and I want to I want to see what else is out there, what's possible, and the more uh, I can push myself, the more I can show uh, first my three boys that there's uh you know hard work is not something to be afraid of uh, and if you know if your dad can do it you can do it too but i'm also i gotta give it it's like paying it forward to those other wounded veterans or anybody out there that's you know going through a hard time and think that there's no answer and that they might not be strong enough if i can i can put myself through these things I've been through, you know, blindness and came back. I went through uh, going deaf and and making my way back, and you know the the mountains and the white water and the, the these these you know tougher and tougher foot races, and I can do this. And it's possible. You know, I started I started a business, started a fudge company. You can do that, and you know, blind people can actually do these things. Um, I started investing in real estate and I started a business, another company with a fellow ordered uh, friend of mine and I partnered with him and we're investing in real estate and I'm teaching him that, you know, there's life after injury. And that's one of the most amazing feelings is that, you know, you know, turn the light bulb on in somebody else's life. And it's, it's, so the more I can do this, it's fulfilling in a personal sense. But even more so, if I can show others that there's, that it's, it's, it's possible. Like, I've been there. I've done it. Let me, here, let me show you. Lace up. Let's go for a run. Yeah, and I know Ty had a blast doing this Daytona. And I guess what brought you out to the Daytona 100? Did, did you say we had a blast? That's the way I put it. Everybody says like, so what's, uh, what was, what was running that 100 miler like? Uh, is, <laughs> is fun the appropriate word? Yeah. It's always in retrospect. You're like, yeah, that was, that was awesome. You know, it's funny, you know, before and after every one of these things, like climbing a mountain's just the same way, you know, before and after it's like, I can't wait for this one. I can't wait for the next one. That was awesome. That was so epic during it's like i can't believe i'm doing this again <laughs> uh, i can't believe i'm putting myself through this ah misery but um yeah uh, it was a very very uh appreciative very grateful for the team we had yeah my buddy david uh drove us down there and then we met up with the the rest of the team who we first time face to face ever first time for ty guiding a blind person like the day of so that's like like trying uh new sports gels or you know a sh you know new pair of shoes for the first time at the race 
not advisable. Uh, we made it work. And actually, um, the poise of these, these guides, you know, the um, you know, professionalism uh, of the crew, everybody, it, it just, it actually made me feel like, um, you know, a little embarrassed to complain that, you know, my feet are hurting a little bit. <laughs> you know, it's kind of, kind of started to chafe and they're like, come on, we got to get going. <laughs> but uh, it was, it was great. I mean, everybody was in um, mutual misery together so we could be happy mutually. Right. Misery loves company. And that was kind of where I was. We're, we're all in the suck. So uh, tell me about your kids, you know. <laughs> you know, you know, all of our like, like, you know, the bottoms of our feet are like sloughing off from blisters and calluses and stuff. And you know, it's like, yeah, everybody's feet feet hurt. So, read any good books lately? <laughs> so, I guess you know, kind of take me into Daytona. You know, how those you know the first thirty six or so miles go? Well, yeah, I'm the wrong one to ask about geography and you know uh, what everything looked like but uh yeah there was about a seven mile loop and then we would head south you know uh towards daytona you know the morning it was nice it was cool there was this awesome you know breeze coming in from the ocean and it was just you know just enough to make you think man i hope this lasts for the whole race but man that was a sneaky trick. <laughs> and then the sun started coming up, started getting warmer. And then just, yeah, it was just, it was wet. It was really, it wasn't, I didn't think, it, I never at, one, at any point thought, man, it's hot out. It wasn't. It was just, uh, it was so humid that it, it compounded what heat there was. And there was nowhere for your sweat to wick off. It wasn't going anywhere. So I was constantly drip, dripping, like right from my nose. Uh, just sweat, moisture, just dripping everywhere. It couldn't get like dry fingers and uh, everything was soaked. So then everything started to chafe. Uh, and I just didn't even bring, I did, had no, nothing, I didn't have a clue. Because I train, I mean, like I live in Florida. I mean, the, I'm not that, not even like a... I don't know how many minutes of longitude um, Pensacola is from Jacksonville and Daytona, but it's not that far. And so, I'm, you know, I train in my garage, which is hot. <laughs> Over the summer, I did the uh, uh, Green Virtual Race across Tennessee. Um, and uh, that's, you know, a thousand kilometers virtually you know, over four months from you know, one end of Tennessee to the other. And I decided to do the down and back. So 2,000 kilometers or about a little over 1,200 miles in um, four months. And that was my part of my training regimen. And, and then, of course, I, I ran the, uh, the, the Canal Corridor 100 back in my hometown of Akron in um, October. So... Physically, I was ready to go, but then I don't know how I got surprised by humidity when I live here, but I was. Uh, I didn't bring enough socks, and um, just did, did my feet just weren't ready for it. So um, that was the worst part was the feet. Uh, but uh, the the race itself, uh, the, the only other thing was um, 
the terrain, you know, it's a fl it's flat all the way. Maybe a bridge here or there that was a little bit of a uh, you know, an ascent. Not really, not really that much. It's pretty much flat the entire way, except there's you know curb cuts and sidewalks and imperfections and sand had been strewn about from the hurricane. And it was it was actually really hard for a guy who can't see exactly where to place his feet or when to pick them up. And uh, I would scuff my feet on some of these imperfections and just rip that blister wide open. And oh, that was, it was brutal. So that, that, that it sucks a lot of the energy out of it. And uh, sucks that, you know, it, it's a royal morale suck. But uh, that, that was why uh, these, you know, this team I had with me was amazing. They just, you know, they told me, you know, they knew when, you know, it was tie. I, I gave him. I gave him all the secret sauce. I said in a call uh, before the race. I, I told everybody, "Hey, if I'm ever like whining and boning, all you gotta do is say, soldier up, buddy.' It's like it's pretty much like saying no balls. Uh, <laughs> hey, so, soldier up.' And Ty did that. He's like, "Hey, we're we're like seventy miles. This is when the real race starts. At you know thirty miles to go, you need a soldier up." I'm like, damn it, dude. <laughs> I can't believe I told you. Yeah, I was, I was joking with Ty. I'm like, oh man, he's an NCO. He's fine with NCO talk. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, they do. They knew what you know, buttons buttons to push and when, and uh, we made it. Yeah, and I know coming into St. Augustine with you know because it's one. It, I think it, it it is the oldest city in the country, and obviously it's not the most accessible city in the country because of that. What was it like going through there and trying to maneuver with all the curbs and everything that's going on? Yeah, it was it was difficult. Some places were narrow, definitely like uneven um, sidewalks and streets and stuff. But uh, uh, you know, the part part that disappointed me the most was it was the. I always got to kind of take my signature combat role at some point during a race. It's going to happen. I trip on something and boom, I go down. But I've, you know, being blind, going deaf and losing my vestibular balance. And of course, you know, being outdoor kind of guy, I've learned how to fall well. So I kind of do this tuck and I do my combat role, pop right back up and I'm like, all right, let's keep going. But <laughs> I guess I ran like straight into like a trash can or something. I couldn't complete my role. Um, and I guess at that point, you know, some, some ladies some girls were, you know, there's a lot of tourists that go and walk around and stuff. And some ladies were coming. I'm going, Oh, is he okay? And uh, the, um, you know, uh, my team, you know, the guys are like, Oh, he's fine. He's fine. He's fine. And, and then, Hey, Hey, maybe, Maybe, maybe I, I, I could use a little attention. <laughs> oh, ow, ow, ow. <laughs> but um, there's, there's plenty of stuff uh, to complain about if you look hard enough. The truth is that it was, it was a great day. It could have been a lot harder. It could have been a lot hotter. Uh, the, the traffic uh, wasn't all that bad. Uh, we took a, a little detour. Um, when we missed a turn and added about three, uh, three um, or so miles, about an hour to our race. And the, but it could have been further. It could have been a lot worse. 
they, we got, got ourselves back on track and we made it with 20 minutes to spare before cutoff. So um, now I'm, I'm dubbing myself the, the uh, cutoff king because uh, now of my three 100s, I've finished it uh, half an hour before cutoff, 10 minutes before cutoff, and now 20 minutes before cutoff. Yeah, I remember hearing that, hearing about that. You guys were just like, uh, like, no, like he's got to get up and he's got to go. Like, we have to go now, now, now. <laughs> and that, that was the thing. Every time I sat down to, uh, you know, like change socks or get some food or whatever, like, you, you, you really don't want to get in the chair. But um, the balance being so bad, just like I can't stand up and change my socks. So, uh, oops. Uh, so I kind of, <laughs> they would put me in the chair. I would sit down, try to eat something while um, also like smearing goo all over my feet and changing socks and doing all these things. And then, of course, the, uh, I don't know if I should mention this, but uh, I did it in a Facebook post and I said, um, you know, like I, the, the other places were chafing, including like in my shorts. So I put, put some goo all the way down, like on my backside. And then I had like toxic hand, right? <laughs> and that's when, of course, that's when they're, they're like, oh, come on, we gotta go, we gotta go. And they grab my, the wrist of my hand. I'm like, don't wave that around. Um, <laughs> baby, baby, baby wipe. And we gotta go, we gotta go. I'm like, yuck. <laughs> I mean, I, I've had that before and I literally had to put my balls in a sandwich bag full of Vaseline just to keep going. <laughs> I, it was so wet. Everything was uh, chafing. I had a chafing in my armpits from to like right where the, the seams of the t-shirt were rubbing. Um, you know, all over the place. So I was pretty much gooped from like waist down. Uh, also the, like whatever the anti-cramping gel they put on like on my calves and uh, shins. I, mean, I was literally like just greased down for this thing. <laughs> it's like a perfume actually. I was like the, the, you know, the, the greased up dev guy from, um, the family guy. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but yeah, eventually, you know, you, you make it down to those final miles, you know, how'd that final five miles go? Hmm. <laughs> well, it was, it, it's actually like the final eight miles, but, uh, it, you know, it's nice to know where you are when you are. Right. But, uh, being blind and deaf, I got to rely on other people and they don't ever want to tell you how far you still have to go. So I'm trying to do this like math in my head, but it's getting real foggy and I'm working on limited information and it's always longer than I think it is. So, um, uh, I think, I think in my, like my head, somebody said, uh, we got, we got eight more miles to go and then we get eight miles uh, down the road, I'm like, man, we must be right around the corner. And like, no, we got an, another eight. We got eight more miles to go. I'm like, you already said that eight miles ago. <laughs> like, I don't know if I can get. Like, I'm done. I'm toast. Um, uh, we got to keep going, man. And man, Ty, he would get under my skin. He's like, you want to quit? Like, Shut up. <laughs> this is hard. Do you want to quit? <clears throat> I was just, and, and, and seriously, I was like, it was to the point where I'm like so brain dead. I'm just growling now. 
<laughs> yeah, you want to quit? And I'm like, and I just move forward, keep moving forward, and that's 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 how it went. And and um, for the you know, when we're running with a tether uh, that works when you're fresh or when you're moving, you know, moving moving a good clip. But then we do our you know intermittent uh, power walking, and the more fatigued I get, the more uh, or the the less balance I have, so uh, it's kind of being like swinging around on on the the tether. Uh, I just I just I, I can't. I'm not stable walking as I am running when my legs are pumping better. So we would go to that sighted guide elbow thing uh, and just skip the tether, and then by like the last eight five miles we went we got to the point where i had a guide on either side of me and i was holding on to two elbows and we were all like at a jog running um down the road must have been an interesting sight but uh that's how we did it we we came in uh to the finish uh you know three of us and whomever else was you know, on the crew that joined us across the finish line, but we, uh, we did it, you know, arm in arm, basically. And how did it feel just getting across that finish line? It felt great. Cause they said, first thing they did, and, uh, I think <laughs> the very first thing was here, sit down. I'm like, thank goodness. <laughs> uh, and I sat there and I'm so exhausted. I'm so brain dead. They handed me a bell buckle and I'm like, what the hell is this thing? Oh, oh yeah. Uh, and then they put, you know, like a finisher's medal on and I'm still sitting down. I'm like, they, uh, hand me a burger. I don't even have any saliva. Um, and, and uh, so funny at that very moment, Chris Costman, uh, you know, a bad water race director comes over and he starts talking to me and I'm pretty sure. He, he asked me if I was going to apply for the Badwater 135. And the only thing I could think of, and I'm so glad I held my tongue, was like, man, not a really, not like the best time to ask a guy. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, I don't want to do that again. Uh, but yeah, a few minutes later, I'm like, I, I, I'm so, I am so applying. We're doing, <laughs> we're doing that. Because remember, you know, before and after, but during, I was still, I was still in the during, you know, mindset like this sucks. I'm getting out of here. Yeah, because hey, look, it, if you're thinking about Badwater, have you thought about any of the other races that are out there? Because I know trail could be a little different. Uh, it's not about preferring the flat races. I would love to go after some of those big, nasty, hilly ones, but it's it's the terrain. I mean. St. Augustine kicked my butt. So uh, trying to do like Western States or, you know, uh, Hard Rock or something that's, you know, in the mountains and, you know, over, you know, rocks and that. It's, uh, it's just something that uh, I haven't tried um, since losing my balance and losing my hearing. I've been mountain climbing. I've never tried mountain running. So, uh, this was a step up from, uh, the canal corridor, which is like, it's like running on a track. You know, the, it's all along the crushed limestone towpath of the Ohio Erie canal. And, you know, 
the nature of canals. They just can't be very hilly. So um, it's super flat and uh, it's all this like fat. It's like sand basically, but really packed down, like packed down gravel. It's really, really well manicured the entire way. So uh, super flat. And then, you um, uh, the Daytona 100 was just a little bit more terrain than that. So it was, it was more difficult. It was a bigger challenge. It was like one step up, uh, especially with the humidity and all that. It was just more of a challenge. And I made it. I know what I need to work on. And I'm ready for the next challenge. Or I will be. <laughs> yeah, and I guess, you know, we can kind of start closing it up with, you know, what was the good, the bad, and the ugly for the Daytona 100? <laughs> well, you know, besides, uh, like, um, like being, was a Brody from Mallrats with the stink palm, uh, the, the good, of course, was, you know, the, the team I had around me, because that's, it's kind of a catch-22. It's two sides of the coin. You know, being blind, um, it turns... It, like, I have to rely on others to do uh, things that I used to be independent. You know, you wouldn't even, you know, think twice about doing yourself. And the flip side of that is that it turns everything into this team sport where I get running partners every time I want to go for a run. And... That's the best part about this is that I get to share this experience uh, with guides and with pacers, with the, the crew, and they they experience. <laughs> I can't even imagine dragging a moaning, groaning, blind, deaf guy a hundred miles. That's um, that's a pretty that takes a pretty amazing human. Uh, so that's definitely the good. That's probably also the bad and the ugly right there. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I'm glad to have experienced it, and I'm glad to have uh, you know made these connections. And it was good to have finally met Ty. He's an uh, incredible person. Uh, it was great to get out with my fellow army buddy David. We've been training partners for a long time and good friends, and it was. It was great to share that experience with him. Um, you know, also uh, Kyle and JP and Jeff and you know, the you know Kelly and uh, uh, Carmen, Katrina. And it was it was amazing. It was I mean, everybody was was terrific and was exactly where they needed and doing what they needed to do at the moment when I needed it or the other runners needed it. And it was it was a great experience altogether. But holy cow, man, that's. It's fucking sweet. I thought about doing Daytona, then I then I didn't. What what you got next on the schedule? Nothing's on the schedule, actually, except enjoying the holidays with uh, with my family. Next year, we were talking uh, marathon to sob. I don't know if that's still on, with a chance of possibly running bad water in July. It may just be um, training for that if. Uh, my uh, application gets accepted. Yeah, there may be some, um, you know, maybe something smaller along the way uh, in preparation, you know, some races in between. Um, if uh, that becomes the goal, then that's definitely going to be a major focus. Yep. Daytona was Daytona was my third um, hundred miler. So, and I didn't even think I'd be... Uh, 
you know, considered for it until this weekend, this past weekend. <laughs> well, hey, yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. It was awesome. Absolutely. I'm glad we were able to do this, and I apologize for um, uh, mixing up my calendar or something the first attempt. <laughs> I appreciate you giving me another chance. And uh, like I said, I have enjoyed this conversation. So thank you. Heck yeah, man. Thank you. Well, good talk. Yeah, have a good night. Same to you. Have a great evening. All right, and there we have it for Aaron Hale and the Daytona 100 freaking incredible and god bless aaron for his sacrifice to our country you know you know a lot of men and women went overseas and some of them never came back you know aaron was able he was still able to come back was he changed yes but now he's crushing feats climbing mountains doing 100 milers kayaking in crazy rivers while most of us we're still laying in bed so if aaron can do it you can too you know there's no excuses so hey with that and hey i know it's the holidays and i know it's a little too late to order fudge for christmas but let me tell you what no one will say no to a late gift of fudge so go check out that eodfudge.com that's aaron's site and let me tell you what so he's got a peanut butter cream fudge that's awesome a chocolate walnut fudge and he's got the american pick-me-up and by the way, let me tell you what that is real quick. It's a rich white chocolate and a Kentucky bourbon cream layer. So that's already good. On top of a mocha layer with a smooth coffee finish. Talk about delicious. So you know that that's got to be good. And hey, yeah, with that, you know, from your holiday runs to your holiday sweets. Until next time. Happy trails. <laughs>